Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to do a little review and then uh, finish our section off today. As we've gone through this section of Scripture, it's uh, been interesting to see how uh, different people have commented on different aspects of of the teaching. And, you know, one thing that uh, um, I hope comes across more than anything else is that God is concerned with the holiness of His church, that He does not and will not tolerate sin among the members of the body of Christ. And... Um, it will be meted out in one way or another. And this is a very serious thing for us to talk about, as it has been the last couple of weeks, but it's also been something that a lot of churches don't talk about in this fashion. So I understand if there's a little dissonance in your ear, ears as you hear this teaching, but it's, it's what the Word of God says and calls us to as the body of Christ. Well, let's read the text, and just to familiarize us with this with it once again, in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, this passage, as we noted, speaks of the holiness of God's church, of Christ's church. And uh, I just want you to turn over with me, just quickly, over to Revelation chapter 1, because it gives us another picture of Christ here in this text of Revelation chapter 1. And most of you are familiar with Revelation chapter 1. You've probably read it several times. And uh, it's a picture of Christ walking through the churches. And in verse 12, it says that he lists a bunch of churches there, that he sees Christ moving through the churches. And he says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. John is having a vision here. And uh, it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long, long robe and golden sash around his chest. And then it goes on to describe him. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow, which speaks of the purity of Christ. And it says that his eyes were like the flame of fire, which speaks of his judgment, his all-seeing, penetrating vision. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades, of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are, and those that are, that will take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands and the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Christ is interested in the holiness of his church. And I think that God deals with his church in a myriad of different ways. But I think one, one way in which God deals with His church is when it comes to its purity, when sin has to be dealt with. That vision, His eyes of fire, His vision is penetrating through the churches and He's looking, and he's looking for that sin. Well, how does the Lord deal with sin in His church? Three ways, basically. He uses three elements to deal with sin in his, in his church. First of all, I think he uses the Word of God. He uses the Word of God. How many times have you been caught in a sin and you, you're reading the Word of God and it just convicts you to the heart and it causes repentance? Ephesians chapter 5, turn over there, it talks about being washed with the word. It talks about husbands washing their wives in verse 25 and 26. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of of water with the what? With the Word. All right? When we're in the Word of God, it convicts us. It moves us to conviction. It's a purifier. It's not the only way that God works, but He works through the Word. He also works through the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it's called the Spirit of Holiness. And the ministry of the Spirit is essential to the holiness of the church. Because if we're not doing things in the Spirit of God, what are we doing them in? The flesh, right? We're doing them in the flesh. And what's done in the flesh, what does the Bible say? It is sin, right? We talked about this in our Wednesday night group. We've been looking at a section of Romans, and we're talking about how God calls us to holiness and how that we can walk in in holiness as we walk in the Spirit. But as soon as we turn away from the Spirit and we begin to think that we got this thing under control and we can deal with it, we don't need the Spirit, and we start doing it in the flesh, inevitably, sin is not too far from our door. And there's that cycle of of sinning and going back to God and confessing and being filled, being controlled once again by the Spirit of God. If we could just live under the Spirit of God and His control, do you understand that we would not sin? 
because he is the one living through us. But because we're in this sinful body, this fleshly body, and sin is all around us 24-7 sometimes, there's, you know, there's just so much temptation. But when we're walking in the Spirit, we're not sinning. If you can do it for 30 seconds, you can do it for 60 seconds. If you can do it for 60 seconds, maybe you can do it for two minutes. And you've got to be careful with that because some people use that mentality and pretty soon they're, they're, they're teaching spiritual perfection where they have arrived. They don't even sin at, at all anymore. That's not true. Even the Apostle Paul over and over again said that he, he beat his body, had to beat this fleshly body into subjection because of its sinfulness. So not only the Word of God does God use, but he uses the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit. But I think also, as you see, as we saw there in Revelation, the Lord moving through his churches and that penetrating gaze and the the purity of his hair and the holiness, searching out sin. I mean, Jesus Christ is no longer here on earth. He left us here as his representatives, right? So I think the third way, not only the, the word of God and the spirit, but I think the ministry of people. How many times have you been maybe caught in a trespass or a sin and a brother or sister of Christ came, came across your path and, and kind of pointed it out to you? And you were grateful to them for doing so because it put you back on the right path. See, God not only uses the Word of God and the Spirit, but He also uses His people because we are representing Christ When the church is moving to seek its purity, Christ is in the midst of the church. But when the the church is is putting up with sin and just allowing sin to run rampant, Christ is not going to be in the midst of that church. Never is the church more like the Lord Jesus Christ than when it is dealing with sin. Than it, when it is engaged in dealing with sin. And you know what? Even as Christians, we are no more like Christ. We are never more like Christ, I should say, than when we are dealing with sin in our lives or maybe in the lives of others. Because we're seeking the purity of something God loves, His church. And today, unfortunately, everybody's got on the bandwagon of love. They forgot that we serve a holy God. All the music is about love. Love, 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 love. Well, love is good. Love is a great thing. But that's not all there is to our God. See, and unfortunately today in the world, that's what the common people think. They think, well, God is a God of love. I've heard that said. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is simply when something bad happens... What do they do? Yeah, they blame God. What kind of God would that? What kind of God of love do you serve? And all their, their, their picture of God that they've created in their own mind is a God of love. It's not a God of holiness. It's not a God of judgment. 
And somehow even the church has bought into this illusion that, you know what, if we want to build the church, if we want to grow in numbers, all we have to do is just love everybody. Just love everybody. Love will cover a multitude of sins, the Bible says. So all we've got to do is just, just love, 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 love. If somebody's doing something wrong, we'll just love them. Don't confront them, because if you confront them, what are you going to do? You're going to tick them off, right? They're going to be offended, and they won't come back to your lovely little church. And that's the problem with a majority of churches today. Rather than teaching the gospel and preaching the gospel and the holiness of God and the judgment coming judgment of God and all these things, I mean... It's incredible to me that so many times, you know, there, there's folks within churches who are members of churches who have come and said, you know what, I want to be part of this fellowship. I believe in what you're doing here. And yet, their lives are not in accord with what God says they should be. What are you to do? Well, that's what this section of Scripture talks about. This section of Scripture talks about the idea that, you know what, you can't just turn the other cheek. You can't just look the other way. Somehow the church has believed that if you just love everybody, then that's when renewal will come. That's when revival will come. But that's not true. You won't have true revival. You won't have true renewal. You won't have true restoration in any church until you have a sense of, first of all, the holiness of God, and then, secondly, the sinfulness of men. Until we get a grasp of those two things, (laughs) there's not a lot we can do as far as revival goes. Because church isn't a place where you just come together and, and you know, hear some puffy message to hope make you feel better so you can make it through the week. That's what we've kind of brought church down to that level. Well, I hope they sing a song that I enjoy or, or I hope he says something that speaks in a scripture that I like or whatever. You know, just give me that shot in the arm and help me get through the week. That's not what church is about, beloved. I mean, we gather here to worship The almighty, holy God who created us. And when we put that into perspective of who we are, we're nobody. We're sinners desperately in need of his grace. See, that out of which true revival, that's out of which true restoration can come. Simple sentimentalism Dealing with love and making everybody feel good is never going to renew a church. You can even go back all the way to the 1700s and Jonathan Edwards. And it's interesting when you study church history and you look at some of these individuals who've gone before and during the great revivals and the awakening, the great awakening, you find certain characteristics about these individuals and about what they taught about. Jonathan Edwards was probably one of the most powerful preachers in the 1700s. And what did he preach on? 
how to have a better marriage, how to have a better job, how to be my more financially wealthy. What did he preach on? No, he preached on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men over and over and over and over. If you study church history, you begin to realize that this man would stand up and he'd preach on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. And it says that even while he was speaking his sermons in what was a lot of times just a monotone reading of a text, people through his sermon would begin to cry out to God for mercy. Well, he must have been a dynamic. No, he wasn't. He was... He was using the truth of the word of God to penetrate the hearts of people. And the spirit was working. Never gave an invitation. Didn't do that. Matter of fact, the invitation, some people ask me, well, as a pastor, why don't you give an invitation at the end of the service? The main reason I don't do that, I mean, I'll invite people to come to Christ in my closing prayer. But as a youth pastor, I saw too many people coming down aisles making professions of Christ, and then two weeks later, that profession meant nothing to them. And then when you tried to ask them about their life, oh, I already did that, I already went down front. So you have to understand the whole invitational system, it didn't start with Christ. It started with Charles Finney. And we don't really owe him a lot for starting it, to be honest with you, because the invitational system, when people are invited to come down and make a profession of faith in front of everybody, and you know, you'll hear evangelists say, well, anybody Jesus called, he called publicly. Well, sure he did. But I never see Jesus telling people to come down and, and do something and then go off into a prayer room. And I don't see that. I don't see it as biblical. And I also see that it's something that can be so easily manipulated you know, you play, play some nice music and you make people feel guilty and then, you know, boy, it looks good when people come down. It can be very manipulated. Not that God doesn't work through it. He, I think he does in spite of it. But even the Billy Graham organization says there's no way to really know of all the millions of people that have come forward in his crusade who's really saved. And what happens is people bypass the idea that they're a sinner and they need the grace of God and all of a sudden it's put on this little prayer that they prayed. And maybe they got a little quiver in their liver so, well, yeah, I gotta go. So, you know, they come down and they pray this prayer thinking that somehow a prayer saves you. See, in Edwards' time, in Jonathan Edwards' time, he preached and he would preach on the holiness of God and he would preach on the sinfulness of Man. And people through the middle of his sermon would be screaming out, crying for him to stop because they were so convicted of their sin. That's real revival. Well, we've gotten away from that. Now we talk about more practical things in sermons. We talk about more, you know, loving things in sermons how to have better relationships and all those things. Because somehow the church thinks that if they just drop all the the preaching and the doctrine and the holiness and sin talk, well, then people will like them and they'll come to their church. Well, they may, but they're still on their way to hell, and that's what they they miss. 
They tend to dilute the gospel. That's why we have to proclaim the holiness of God. And we have to have a a holy hatred of sin in our lives. That's when revival can start. He wrote in a Jonathan Edwards, I just want you to, I think you can put it up on the screen there if it's up there, the quote. Um, Actually, I didn't tell you about the slideshow, did I? Okay, it's under PowerPoints, by the way. You can open up PowerPoint. It's under uh, the PowerPoint folder, and you'll find it in there. It's, Ma- it's Matthew uh, 145. Sorry, I didn't set that up for you. If you can find it, that's fine. If not, I'll just read this. Um, in, when Jonathan Edwards was uh, writing, he wrote this one time. He was, he was very concerned to make it known that the human nature is very... Uh, a very fertile ground for fleshly religiosity. <laughs> I like that word, fleshly religiosity, which is impiously spiritual, but ultimately rooted in self-love. High emotional experiences, he said, gushy religious talk, even praising God and experiencing love for God and man can be self-centered and self-motivated. In contrast to that, Experience of genuine renewal from the Holy Spirit and God centered in the character of, based on worship. Have an appreciation of God's worth and grandeur divorced from self-interest. And so he really, he really got it right. He, he understood what it meant to preach the holiness of God. And the, the, the sinfulness of men. Now, I say that because in Matthew 18, we're dealing with sin within the body of Christ, right? We're dealing with sin within the body of Christ. One, wrote, one, one writer wrote this. He said, most congregations of professing Christians today are saturated with a kind of dead goodness an ethical respectability which has its motivational roots in the flesh rather than in the spirit. Surface righteousness which does not spring from faith and the spirit's renewing action but from religious pride and condition conformity to tradition as a form of godliness which denies its power. It was John Owens who wrote this, The bigger and power of the spiritual life depends on the mortification of sin. He said, Sin has to be faced, exposed, and dealt with. One of the great reformers, he actually has a book called The Mortification of Sin. Nice little book. But I'll tell you what, you won't read a couple pages before God takes the words of this man and drives them right through your heart. (laughs) Now, Christ wants to do this with his church. He wants his church to be a holy, pure church. When Christ came into the world, he came into the world to do one thing. 
He said it over and over and over again. He did. He said it over and over again that he wanted to do one thing. You can see it in John 5.19, John 5.30, John 6.38, John 7.16. He says it over and over again. He only came for one thing. He said, you know what? I came to do not my will, but what? But the will of him who sent me. The will of my Father. That was his goal. And he says it over and over and over and over again. And the will of the Father can be reduced to one statement. You see it in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he says, But as he who called you is holy, you be holy. In your manner of life and in everything you do, be holy. That's taken out of Leviticus 11, where the Lord says, You be holy, for I am holy. And so Christ is moving through his church, through his people, through the word, with searching eyes, trying to find and purge out any sin. Isaiah 35, 8 says that God is preparing a path, and that path is the way of holiness. In James chapter 4, verse 80, the, the, the Word of God says, Draw near to God, and He'll what? He'll draw near to you. And then it says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will exalt you. See, I think we've... we've the pendulum, I'm not you know, saying that we need to be like Jonathan Edwards and, and just you know, get up here and just monotone read and, and just fall under God's conviction. I mean, that would be great, I think. But I think, and I think you'll agree with me, the pendulum has went the other way. Where in most churches today, you go in, for the most part, I mean, it's kind of like you're going into a Vegas-style show. I mean, I, I'm all for high-tech stuff. I mean, you know me well enough to know that and try to, whatever. But I, I'm just saying that it's, it's gotten out of hand in so many churches to the point where most of the, maybe the 60-minute the worship service that they do have Maybe the speaker, they call him. They don't even call him the preacher or the pastor. They the speaker. Our speaker this morning is, you know, maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I mean, I can't even get through my introduction in 20 minutes. You know, I mean, I don't know. I'd, I'd be, boy, I'm glad I'm not at a church like that. I'd be in big trouble. And it's very catchy. It's very, I mean, you can walk away from some of those services feeling real good. The music's right spot on. They got all sorts of technology and to keep your attention going. And they got all sorts of things. And usually the, the, the speaker, as they call it, gets up. And it's an incredible speaker. Somebody who's just incredibly trained. And something's not, something's missing. God is calling for a purging and a purifying of his church today. The will of God is that his people, first of all, that we be holy. 
personally and as a congregation. That's the work that Christ wants to do in his church. I mean, we can sit around and plan and, and posture and, and, and pray about all sorts of things, but if, if we're missing the boat on the holiness of God and the holiness of his church, we don't need to go to the next step because it's definitely going to be done in the flesh. The Word of God does its part when it's proclaimed. The Spirit of God does its part when He moves in people's hearts. See, but we as people, as individuals that make up the body of Christ, we're to join the Word and the Spirit in human flesh. And we are to act on behalf of Christ because He's not here in the presence of His church. And we are also to seek out its purity and its holiness. And that's where we come to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And we've looked at these different points. First of all, we looked at where does this this stuff happen? Some people call it church discipline. I just call it dealing with sin in the body of Christ. Well, the place it happens, it tells us in verse 17, it talks about the church. And we talked about how it's not talking about the Pentecostal, the new church that's going to be born at Pentecost. He's not talking about that. That wasn't even around yet. He's talking about wherever there is is two or three believers gathered together, that makes up a church. That could be in your family. That could be in your home group. That could be your Bible study at work. That's where this is to take place. Secondly, we looked at the purpose, and the purpose and goal of Dealing with sin is always to restore that brother or sister in Christ. It's never to, you know, uh, shame them or anything like that, but it's to restore them back to the body of Christ. That's the purpose. If we understand the purpose of discipline, if we understand why do we go to a brother or sister in Christ who's sinning, the reason we go, we don't go to point their sin out just to say, ha ha, you're doing it, I'm not. We don't go to mock them. We, don't, we go out of love. We go because, you know what, this is grieving God's heart. It's grieving my heart. It's affecting the body of Christ. And the reason I'm coming to you is not to make you feel worse. The reason I'm coming to you is to restore you. To speak God's truth into you so that you can say, wow, okay, I didn't, maybe I didn't see this sin in my life. I didn't know I was doing this or whatever. Or yeah, I did and I want to repent. I want to turn back to God. The purpose is always restoration. And then thirdly, we looked at the person in verse 15. Who does this? And it said the person who is, if your brother sins against you, you go It's not the pastor's job. It's not the elder's job. It says you go. If somebody offends you, you go. First of all, you have to have a willingness. I mean, how many times do you wake up in the morning and go, man, I hope somebody sins against me today so I can confront them. That's not something that we enjoy doing. Any human being wouldn't enjoy that. It's it's similar when we're commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But what's the number one fear of believers today in the church of God? Sharing their faith. Well, they might not like me anymore. There's no willingness there to do it. You have to have a willingness to obey God's word, whether it's in evangelism or whether it's confronting sin. You have to have a willingness. 
And that willingness is born out of your zeal for God. You want to you serve God so much that you're saying, hey, you know what, this is going to be hard to do. This is never easy. This is never something that's done with delight in the heart of the person going to the person who sinned. It's a grievous task, but it's something that has to be done, especially when someone sins against you, a brother or sister sins against you. You go to him and you tell him his fault. Be willing to do it. And hopefully that your life is in order so that they, they can't point their finger back at you. That's the third element. Not only a willingness, a zeal for God, but personal purity. We talked about Matthew 7, I think it was, where you know, it talks about a guy going to somebody and talking about the speck in their eye, and you've got a hunking two-by-four hanging out of your eye. Okay, that's not going to work very well. We have to deal with our personal business. Now, with that being said, who here is perfect? Right? I mean, none of us are perfect. So we're always going to fear that. We're always, it's never going to be comfortable to go talk to somebody about sin. Because you know what? We're going to be going, yeah, I don't have it together here either. It doesn't say only the perfect people go. It doesn't say if your brother sins against you and you have never sinned in your life, then you can go and tell him his fault. It doesn't say that. It says you go, and you go out of love, and you go because of you want this brother restored or sister restored to the body of Christ. Not only personal purity, or not only the, the person that we looked at, but the fourth thing we looked at was why do we do this? Why do we have to even do this? What's the provocation? Well, it's because it says your brother sinned against you. Someone sinned against you. We looked at the direct way and the indirect ways that we can sin against one another. I can call, come, go up to your face and call you a name. That's sinning directly against you. But let me say this. If you're part of the body of Christ and you're here in fellowship with us here at Grace, and you sin, you're sinning against the body of Christ in an indirect way. So it can be direct or it can be indirect. But the fact is, is that it's going to happen. And it blows my mind of, of, of the churches around today, not many churches practice this. Not many churches tell their people, if you see somebody sinning, you, you go to them and you tell them. And you go in love and you go in humility and you go in meekness, the way we talked about with the right attitude. And that brought us to the fifth point, the process. How do you do this? Well, it tells us right there in in the text. It says, first of all, you go and you tell. The emphasis on going and also the emphasis on telling. And the idea is, is you go right away. When someone, when a sin becomes obvious against you, you don't need to pray about going to them. Do you understand? You go right away. Even though it feels uncomfortable, even though it feels awkward, just go and you go by yourself and you get this person alone and you say, you know what, we're having a conversation today and you said this, it offended me. What do you have to say about that? That's how you do it. You do it out of love. You do it out of compassion. Because you don't want that to become an issue between you and them. And then an issue in the body of Christ. Pretty soon things get out of hand and it's all over the map. It's all over the place. It says, first of all, just go. That's step one. Go and tell him his sin to his face is the idea between you and him alone. It's a difficult task. It's a delicate task. 
We looked at Galatians 6, 1. It says that if a brother is, a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, and then it says this, restore such a one in the spirit of what? Meekness. Okay, speaks of humility. And yet, unfortunately, step one is somehow bypassed by so many people. Somebody does something against them, first thing they do is they pick up the phone or they go to the friend and they, oh, I can't believe this, so-and-so did this, this, this. It's just crazy. If we would just be willing, and I'm speaking to all of us, including myself, be willing to obey this, a lot of issues in the church would just simply go away. We would not give Satan a foothold in any of these dealings if we did it the way God prescribes it. Well, what happens if they don't listen? What if they just say, yeah, get out of my house? Well, secondly, you take one or more with you. We talked about why you do that, to establish witnesses. So that you're going to this person and they say, you know what? Yeah, I did this and I don't care or this is going on in my life and who are you to tell me get lost? Well, then you take two or three other people with you and you go back to the person and you say basically the same thing you said before. Except these people are now with you so that they can witness what's going on. This isn't a one-person show. When you go to them and they sin against you, if they repent and they, you, you make up and forgiven and everything, well, then great, it's dropped, it's over. But if they don't, then you've got to go to step two and you take somebody else with you. And the reason you do that is so that they can see what's going on. Because maybe you're offended and maybe you're not handling yourself correctly or maybe the other person is, is just, you know, just oblivious to what they're doing and and they don't understand you know you you don't know what's going on so these two or three witnesses can sit back and go okay well look here's what's going on let's walk through this together what if they don't listen to that well then the bible says you come back to the church the gathering of believers and you say you know so and so is caught in this trespass here's what the situation is i went to them they wouldn't hear me I took two other people with me. They wouldn't hear us. The Bible says you go to the whole fellowship. You go to that Bible study or that family or whatever group of Christians you're talking about here. And you say, look, here's what happened. And you explain to them. What's the goal? The goal is still restoration. Because as those people hear that out of love in their heart, they should turn to you and say, wow, well, you know, maybe I can say something. Well, good, go. Then that person goes to that individual. So all of a sudden you have the whole church unleashed on this individual who has kind of gone down the wrong path. They're caught in some kind of a sin or trespass. I mean, one person may not do it. Two or three with you may not do it. But all of a sudden this person starts getting notes and phone calls and visits from people in the the fellowship that they once belonged to. What's the goal? Restoration. And remember, this context is when a brother sins. Okay, this isn't saying when, you know, a, a brother or sister or a family decide to leave grace and go to another church. Well, this is what we've got to do. We've got to hunt them down and drag them back. No. I mean, we're not the only church on the block, beloved. There's a lot of churches in the Bay Area that teach the Word, and, and for various reasons, people choose to go to different churches now and then. That's okay. But when there's a sin situation involved that's what we're talking about here just to be clear so we tell the church go step two you take one or more with you if they still don't repent you tell the church 
if they still, it says in verse 15, they don't hear the church, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses even to listen to the church, well, what do you do? Then you treat them as someone outside the fellowship. What do you mean by that? Two things. First of all, you put them out. You don't have any more fellowship with them. That sounds harsh. That sounds almost cruel. Well, you know, if, if they're caught in sin, shouldn't we chase them down? No. If you go through this process correctly, they're not interested in repentance. They're not saying at their house, boy, I really want to come back. No. They're saying, stay away from me. I don't want to hear it. Get lost. They're not repentant. The Bible says you treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. You treat them as an unbeliever. That's, that's a pretty tough thing. That's a pretty harsh thing. But that's what God's Word says. And the reason God's Word says that is because, you know what? If they could have their cake and eat it too, they probably would do it. That's the problem with a lot of churches. Churches allow sin to run rampant within the members of the body. Nobody says anything. Well, it's none of your business. Whose business is it yours? And so when a sin becomes known, everybody just kind of turns the other way or pretends it's not there. And so that person comes to enjoy the fellowship even though there's sin in their life and it's known sin and they're continuing in that sin. But nobody says anything because, you know, we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable and not come back. Well, that's exactly what you want to do. You, you want to basically deal with them as a child. That's what we're talking about here. When your child misbehaves, I'm sure you don't say, boy, thank you for misbehaving. Here's another video game for you, Johnny. Have fun. And he misbehaves again. Here's an ice cream cone, Johnny. I just love all this rude behavior you're giving your parents lately. We're going to buy you a new bike if you keep it up. You're not going to do that. What are you going to do? You're going you're to start taking things away from Johnny. No more video games. No more TV. Matter of fact, we're going to add some extra chores. You're, you're going to turn up the notch on Johnny, the heat on Johnny, until he realizes that, wow, okay, uh, this is getting harder. It's not getting easier. Maybe I should listen to my parents. Maybe I should adapt my behavior to conform to what they want. See, that's the goal with someone who is living in sin within the local church. You go to them. That's uncomfortable. If they don't hear that, you take two or three with you. If they don't hear that, you tell the whole church. If they won't listen to the whole church, then you simply say, you know what? You're, you're not welcome here. What do you mean? You mean I can't? No, yeah, you can't come to church here anymore. Whoa. Who are you to? Well, we're, we're the church. And we're going to protect the holiness of this church. And you're saying you're unwilling to repent of known sin in your life. We've gone through this process. The only way that door is going to open back up for you is when you realize you need to repent and come clean with the Lord. And beloved, when you put that kind of process into place, you don't think that that's going to get some people's attention? You don't think that that's going to motivate you to live for the Lord? 
but not just put them out. That was the first step, or the first part of step four, but then you actually call them back. See, you're, 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 you're putting them out of the fellowship because you don't want them to enjoy the benefits of the fellowship while they're enjoying their sin. And basically, it comes down to one thing. Either you love the world, sin, and the devil, or you love Christ, his church, and holiness. You pick. And as you call them back, you're calling them back because you love them. You don't just write them off. You constantly continue this whole process of reaching out to them. When you see them in the grocery store, you know, you go up to them and, hey, missed you, you know, hope you come back. Constantly, constantly calling them to repentance. You don't just overlook it like nothing happened. You're constantly going after them, just like the shepherd would go after that Lost sheep. Because remember, this is a believer. This is somebody who is engaged in the body of Christ. And when they're engaged in the body of Christ, God is using their giftings. He's using their talents. He's using their resources within the body of Christ. So when someone like that goes down the the sinful path and they're put out of the church, don't get the picture that they're the only one that's suffering. The body of Christ is suffering, beloved, because we're missing their gifts. We're missing their talents. We're missing their, their presence here with us. And so we continue to, even though we make it clear to them until repentance is clear, you're not going to be able to have the privilege to come here and fellowship But brother or sister, you need to get right with God. And we call them back to Christ. Well, that's what we've looked at (laughs) the last several weeks. Well, today, you might be sitting there and say, you know what, I just don't feel like I'm the person to do this. What authority do I have? Who am I to go to another person and talk about their sin? You, you you, you, You begin to believe that. Well, I want to share with you... Today, the last point of our study, the power or the authority of discipline. Where do we get the authority to go meddle in somebody else's life, if that's what you want to call it? Well, look it down at verse 17. When it says you have to do all this, you, you may feel inadequate. You may feel like, look, I'm not the one to do this. And you may be even be thinking of verses like, well, you know, judge not lest you be judged, you know, out of, out of Matthew 7, which is always ripped out of context, by the way. And you might be saying, I'm not perfect. I'm not an apostle. Who am I to go be part of this process? What right do we have to do it? How can we possibly, going through this process, go in front of the church and tell them what somebody else is sinning in their life? Who are we to do that? What is our authority? Well, it tells us in verses 18 to 20 what the authority is. And this is kind of the the top of this whole text. Uh, It's hard to do this. This is difficult to do. This isn't something that's easy. But what's our authority? Because if you can understand our authority, then maybe it makes the task at least uh, palatable. At least you'll be able to, to embrace it. Rather than just go, man, I'm never going to do that. First of all, in verse 18, it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed. The number one first reason that we have as far as our authority or our power to do this is the Father in heaven acts with us. The Father in heaven acts with us. I mean, when you stop and think about it, if you're just doing this by yourself, I don't think anybody would want to do this. But when you begin to realize that God the Father is in heaven acting with you in something, that gives you a little bit of motivation. Now, it comes to verse 18, and this this verse has been wildly misrepresented and wildly uh, misinterpreted by a lot of people in the charismatic movement. Okay, they're, they're constantly, you hear them in their prayers, you know, well, uh, have you ever heard somebody pray this? And, and Lord, we come to you tonight, and, and Lord, we, we bind Satan here tonight. Did you ever hear that? I mean, stop and think of the logic of this prayer. First of all, who are they to bind Satan? I mean, who are they? Who do they think they are? Secondly, do you really believe that Satan is bound when they say that? Think about it. Satan, one of the most powerful, wicked beings there is alive. And you have somebody, by the blood of Christ, I bind you, Satan. Well, Satan, I can't do anything now. Just gotta, can't do any evil. Can't have any evil influence in the world anymore. I'm bound. I guess I'll just go sit in the corner. It doesn't make any sense, does it? That's not what he's talking about. It's not anywhere in Scripture that that kind of craziness goes on. And then you carry that to the logical conclusion, well, if Satan is bound, and you have the authority and the power to bind Satan, um, why would you unbind him? (laughs) You ever think about that? I probably thought about that more than the other one. Because you hear these televangelists, they're always binding Satan, they're binding this demon, they're binding that. Who unbinds these things? Because obviously evil is still going on in the world. Well, that's not what we're talking about here at all. What does he mean? He says there in verse 18, and he makes a point, he says, truly. In other words, this is very important for you to understand. Pay attention is what he's saying. Whatsoever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Now, this may seem a little weird at first, but we've gone through this before, so I'm not going to go into a whole thing of what this means because you can listen to the tape from Matthew 16. But back in that culture and in that society, in rabbinical terms, and they were very familiar because they were a Jewish audience here, they simply referring, they're referring to the rabbis either binding someone's sin on them or loosing their sins from them. It's basically the idea that you're either saying to someone, your sins are bound on you or your sins are loosed from you. In other words, in our popular vernacular today, you might say, well, you're still under the bondage of sin or you're loosed from the bondage of sin. You're free. And the verse says, whatever you bind on earth. In other words, when on earth you say to someone, you are still bound in your sin. When you say that on earth, what he's saying is it's already done in heaven. It's already bound in heaven. 
Now on earth, when you say someone's sins are loosed, in other words, you're freed from your sin, well, you know what? In heaven, that's already accomplished. It's already done. And you can see that in the tense of the word. It's actually the perfect passive. From which means it's already been done with continuing results. We're just noticing it. So when we say someone's sins have been, they're, they're binded upon them or they're loose from them, it's already been accomplished in heaven. We're just seeing it worked out in that individual's lives. So if you have someone who's running across the street and cheating with the neighbor's wife and they're married and they're committing adultery and you go through this whole process, you go to them one-on-one, you take two or three, you tell it to the whole church, they're still unrepentant, the relationship is still going on, it's illicit, it's sinful. You put them out of the church. And basically, you have the authority to do that because in heaven, God is seeing what's going on and he's saying, yeah, that person is still in sin. They're not repenting. They're not coming back saying, I'm sorry, I want to change my life. They're still doing what they're doing, and it's sinful before God. And God sees it, and as the church sees it, we need to act as God would act. And so you would say to that person, you know what? You're still in bondage to your sin. You're still not welcome here. You need to repent. The church is then beginning to act toward what's happening in heaven we're acting with the father the father is acting with us because in heaven he already sees that they're bound in sin or they repented and they're loosed of their sin he's already seen that a jew of that day would have understood that jesus did not mean that men could bend heaven's will He's not saying that. We can't, we, you know, we pray all the time. You hear people pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is where? In heaven. All right, that's what we want to accomplish. We want God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what this is saying. If a person is caught in sin and they're not repenting, they're still bound in their sin. And you can say to them, you know what? You're bound in your sin. And you can say that on the authority of God himself. So we're not trying to get heaven to conform to us as a church. We, as a church, need to conform to heaven's standards. And in Matthew 16... Verse 19, where this is used before, we went over this a little bit, but just to mention it, when you look at, at, at that text, it translates in the future perfect passive. And you could actually read it this way. It will have been bound. Or it will have been loosed. It's already done in heaven. We're just kind of recognizing it down here. I mean, we can do that. We do that every time we go out and we witness to somebody, don't we? When we, we share the gospel with somebody and they say, you know what, I don't believe in Christ and I don't believe in your God and I don't believe... What do we say to them? Do we say, oh, okay, you're cool, everything's fine? No, we don't. What do we say? We say, well, well I've got to tell you what the Word of God says. The God, Word of God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that after... You know, it's pointed on to men once to die, and then the judgment, God will judge you in your sins unless you repent and come to Christ. Do you understand that? What are you doing? 
You're calling what's true, you're calling us, you know, what's true in heaven here on earth. You're telling that person, you're looking forward to an eternity in hell unless you repent based upon the authority of the word of God. You don't just say, oh, okay, you want to believe in Buddha? Go ahead. I'm sure he'll save you. You'll be in heaven with me one day. Unfortunately, there's some pastors out there that are saying that, (laughs) which is just tragic. They're all over the map on that. But if a person has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we have perfect confidence to go to them and say, you know what? Your sins are what? Forgiven. And you're assured of heaven based upon the authority of the Word of God. What are we doing? We're loosing them from their sin because of what they've done in relationship to the gospel. So it's the authority in heaven that is working with us. And so when we pray and we want the will of, of God in our, in our lives and in our church or whatever, I mean, you know, we want his will in heaven as it on earth. That's what, we, that's what we're desirous of. You want to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when a person is bound in their sin and they won't repent, then you have every right, because the Father is acting with us, to go to them and say just that. That you're bound in your sin. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then look at verse 19 before we get to the the second point. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That word agree is a very important word. It means, uh, the Greek word, we get the English word symphony from the Greek word. It means to produce a sound together. In other words, when all of you who are looking into this person's life agree that his sin is still there or his sin is repented of, then we have to understand that the Father in heaven is in agreement with us. Don't rip this out of its context and say, oh, this must mean if if you and I pray about um, for a new Cadillac, well, then that's what we're going to (laughs) get. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the issue of going to a sinning brother. Let's put it in its context. This isn't a blank check for prayer. And it's quoted that way so often, and it's used, misused. People rip it out of context. I mean, it just it irritates you after a while. But it's important for us to understand that when we act, the Father is acting with us. When you move into discipline, when you move into confronting sin within the church, you know what? It's a difficult task as it is. And can you imagine one person trying to do this? How many times would you second-guess yourself? That's why you, you, you need more than one person. You want people that can sit back and say, well, yeah, you know what? This person has repented. And his fellowship needs to be restored. Or no, we don't see that. You don't put that on one person. When it gets to that point... Is bigger than one person. So we don't fear to do it because 
I want you to understand, when you do it, you're carrying out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The second reason, not only does the Father in heaven act with us, but quickly, the Son on earth acts with us. It's a dual divine authority by which we do this, beloved. We're not just going, you know, roughshod off, you know, in, in some area that God doesn't give us the ability to, uh, or the license to do. The Son on earth acts with us. Look at verse 20. And we'll close with this. For where two or three are gathered, what? In my name. Who's talking here? Jesus is talking. There I am among them. Now, I hate to burst your bubble, but, beloved, this is not talking about a prayer meeting. It's just not. So the next time, maybe you're, you, not a lot of people show up for your group on Wednesday night or Friday night or whatever, don't get in your little prayer circle and say, well, Lord, we know that you know, your word promises where two or three are gathered in your, your name, you're there in the midst. I mean, that is just ridiculous. It's, it's just as ridiculous as the charismatics binding Satan. Because it's just not true. That's not what he means. That's not what he's talking about. And if it were true, think of it. What if you were by yourself and you were praying? Well, then Jesus isn't with you? I mean, the word of God that I read says, Lo, I am with you, what? Always. Even to the end of the age. So, you know what? It's not talking about a prayer meeting here. It's talking about restoring a brother or sister who has fallen into sin. It just can't, you know, it's just, it's not logical that he's talking about a prayer meeting. He's putting it in its context. So let's not misuse the Bible. And when we hear somebody misusing it, you know what? In love and in humility, correct them. Um, Sometimes, you know, you hear people say, oh, you know, turn over to the book of Revelations. It's not Revelations, right? It's the Revelation. And so, you know, we need to be bold sometimes about Bible literacy and, and what we're teaching people and what we're allowing to fly under the radar is okay when it's not okay. Not that you have to nitpick on every little thing, but let's, you know, move on the major things. Well, what does Jesus say here? He says, you know what, when you're gathered in my name, what does that mean? To do the works that I've called you to do. What's he doing? I'm moving among the church. What am I doing? I'm looking for, Christ is looking for sinfulness. He's looking for unholiness so he can cleanse it out. And when you gather together in my name to reflect my character and my will, what he's saying is, there I am in the midst. That's what he means. So not only does the Father act with us, but the Son acts with us. We don't need to be questioning whether or not we have the authority to do this. God clearly gave us that authority. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He was kind of a a liberal theologian, but I liked what he wrote about this. He said, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, 
It poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. The sin is brought into the light. The unexpressed is openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and all that is hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Since the confession, he goes on, of sin is made the presence of a, in, is made the presence of a Christian br- brother. The last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God. He finds the forgiveness of all his sins and the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all of its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Nor now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Christ. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. The sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. I love that quote because it's so true. Father, we pray this morning. Lord, we don't know and we don't claim to know the hearts of people. Only you can see their hearts. Lord, we see what's on the outside. But Father, I pray that you would revive your church in such a fashion that we would be grieved by our sinfulness, that we would be taken in all by your holiness. Lord, that we would be unable to just come here and do church as usual, week after week, month after month, year after year. Father, I pray that you would make us instruments of righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you use your word. We thank you that you use your spirit. But Lord, we also thank you that you use us as individuals who make up the body of Christ. Father, help us to begin with our own hearts, with our own selves. I pray that as we contemplate our own sinfulness before you, that the starting place would be to have you cleanse our own hearts, that we would confess our own sin, that we would allow your spirit and your word to do its perfect work in our hearts. And then, Lord, may we seek to purify your church. Not as self-righteous or pious individuals, but that we would come to you humbly. And Father, when we sin, that we would, when we see a brother or sister in sin, that we would reach out to them in humility for the goal of restoring them to the fellowship. Father, that we would consider our own selves too. Your word says, lest we be tempted and fall into a snare of the devil. Father, this is is serious stuff that we're talking about. 
And Lord, I pray that each person here, each Christian here this morning, would look at their own heart, would look at their own motivation for being here, would look at their own spiritual priorities in their own lives. Father, maybe they've drawn away from the body over the past few weeks or months. Maybe that Wednesday night or that Friday night group is just too hard to get to. Maybe they can't come out to the prayer time anymore. Maybe whatever it might be. Lord, you know. But Father, we know that it's not good when people pull away from the body of Christ. And I pray that they would repent and come back. We, we, we love the folks here at Grace. and We love them enough to confront them. But Lord, I pray that you would confront them even here this morning. Cause them to renew their their trust, their faith in you. Cause them to renew their dedication to you. Mm. That they would have a heart of service renewed as well. Father, we also pray for any who may not know Christ here this morning. And Lord, we thank you that they're here and we pray that you would draw them to yourself as only you can through the power of the gospel. Lord, that they would, may, they would understand their need of a savior. Lord, they can't save themselves. And we know we're all sinners and we all fall short of your glory. And Lord, one day we will die, we will leave this earth and be ushered into eternity. Father, we pray that they would turn to you in repentance and hold on to Christ as their Lord and Savior. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.